1: and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and Your Golden Years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmarakarpel.com. And today is Sunday, March the 3rd, 2024, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live with another great program for you. And of course, Art Mendoza of Accomplished Entertainment, producer of this show, is here with us to make everything run smoothly as usual. And in a little while after the break, we'll be joined from Ontario, Canada by Dr. P- Patricia Spindell. Chair of Seniors for Social Action Ontario, co-founder of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and former president of Concerned Friends of Ontario Citizens and Care Facilities. Um, Dr. Spindell is also the recipient of a Government of Canada medal for service to her community, and she is a passionate advocate for the rights of older adults, especially in healthcare and long-term care. And so we've been talking quite a bit on this program about um, the issues of ageism and how it affects older adults through the healthcare system and long-term care system right here in the United States. But this is also going on in Canada. So um, Patricia is here with us to give her some of her insights to help us in advocating for the elderly. And after the program, you'll be able to hear this evening's show again by going straight to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight, along with any website links that are given on the program, and you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to Blog com slash ears. And you'll also be able to hear it on Apple Podcasts. And for information from previous programs or to listen to any of the previous shows we've done here on Blog Talk Radio going back 12 years now, I believe, 10 years on Blog Talk, uh, 12 years altogether, go to my website, drmaricartel.com. Or check it out at blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenears. And you'll also be able to hear all of those programs on Apple Podcasts. And for information about upcoming programs and events, be sure to follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This evening's program is produced by Complice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. And we're going to take a brief break to play some of our... Sponsors commercial. Don't go anywhere. It'll be very brief, and we'll be back right here with Dr. Patricia Spindell. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
0: Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpel will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. Protect your personal information. And look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at one 800-MEDICARE, or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaracarpel.com. And we're
1: back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Karpel and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpel.com. And now joining us on the phone from Ontario, Canada, we have Patricia Spindell. Dr. Patricia Spindel, who is a passionate advocate for our seniors. Welcome, Trish. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>
2: Hello from Canada.
1: Yeah, how are things up there in Canada?
2: You know what? We're the banana belt. for some reason. <laughs> we're very warm here in Ontario.
3: Yeah, I mean, very okay, warm yeah. for
2: us. Very warm for us is about 55 at <laughs> okay. this time of year. Well, we're,
1: we're having very warm for us as well here in Texas. So <laughs> it's, it's hot. It already well, feels you for like the, summer. Thank you for the warm air. <laughs> yeah, So thank you so much for joining us. I'm really um, excited to speak with you this evening. Uh, You know, we've been talking quite a bit on this program about advocating for older adults, especially in long-term care and in healthcare and, you know, ageism and in our society. And, And it's very interesting to find out that all of that is going on similarly up there in Canada and um so i'm really interested in some of your insights in your work um but before we jump into that let's let, let's talk a little bit about your background just briefly so that listeners know who you are
2: well i uh, i actually graduated many many years ago from the university of toronto with a masters in education specializing in applied psychology and then i went on and did a doctoral thesis on the role of stakeholder groups in developing the first long-term care policy in Ontario, and that was from approximately 1985 to 1991. So it dates me a little bit, but there you go. And then Mm -hmm. I taught for many years in post-secondary education here in Ontario uh, full-time and was also an associate dean of health sciences at one of our large community colleges, Humber College. Okay, all right.
1: Well, you know, you said that it kind of dates you in terms of, you know, being in this industry, you know, getting your experience back in the 80s and 90s. But it seems to me that things haven't changed very much. So I think, um, I think
3: you're, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you
2: are you are so right, because uh, I went back over my doctoral thesis, which I wrote 28 years ago, and realized that not a thing has changed. And in fact, Things have actually gotten worse.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's
2: that's very sad.
1: Um, I I was studying and 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 going into nursing homes uh, back in the early nineties as well. And when my mom ended up in a nursing home, I realized the same thing
2: that things hadn't changed. And you know, it's a terrible thing because people don't realize until they're there just how bad things are. And, you know, we've been trying in Seniors for Social Action Ontario, I guess to wake people up to the fact that this can come very quickly, that everybody is a fall or an accident or a serious illness away from hospitalization and then possibly subsequent placement in a nursing home, especially here in Ontario, where we have a bill that forces people into nursing homes against their will, or they have to pay $400 a day for for hospital treatment once um, they're no longer acute care patients. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's terrible, and it transfers their records, too, in some cases, to big private corporations who run the nursing homes also without their consent. So... It's probably unconstitutional, but try and find a lawyer willing to take a case on behalf of elderly people. <laughs> hmm Mhm. No money in that.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well I was I was just gonna ask you some what are some of the issues that you're working on over there in
2: Canada, Well, there are, there's one of them for sure. But, you know, in the U.S., you have, you at least have, money follows the person. We don't have that in Ontario. We don't have PACE, the Program of All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly. We don't have a provincial, you have state ombudsman for seniors. Mm -hmm. Ontario has Mm -hmm. none of that. Ontario has none of that. We literally are back in the mid-1970s when it comes to care of, Older adults, there are literally no protections here for older adults who, you know, are extremely vulnerable. Um, We have what's called an inspection branch if somebody ends up in a long-term care facility. But from our experience, the nursing home industry is made up of large corporations. They have very deep pockets, very good lawyers, and they win in court when government tries to prosecute them.
1: Mm-hmm,
3: hmm So well, I think
2: that's the no case, here too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it is the same because I think probably some of the same corporations are operating in the U.S. as, as operate up here in Canada. Um, you know, and the problem is that there aren't alternatives to these facilities. I mean, people here in Ontario basically have three choices. They, You know, the home care program is in shambles. It's not properly funded or administered. So it's inaccessible, it's unreliable. So, you know, the three choices are that people can stay at home and possibly die of neglect, or they can be institutionalized, and we call that being warehoused in big facilities, or they can choose something we have in Canada called medical assistance in dying, which is basically assisted suicide. The government has made it very easy for people to kill themselves. Mm. So rather than fund the kinds of supports in home supports that people actually need or community supports, you know, we don't have small community residences for people with dementia, for example. Their only choice is a 30-bed locked ward in an institution. That's Wow. From, like that's from the 18th century. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And when you were talking about the uh, medical assistance and dying, um, you know, that kind of reminds me of the hospice issue that we have here. I was just on somebody else's radio program on Wednesday talking about my experience where when my mom was in the hospital, and and I've talked to you about it, uh, where they tried to pressure my family to push my mom into hospice when she wasn't. Ready for it, um, right? But, and and because of the profit. But it sounds like what you're talking about is even a step beyond that, where people make that choice or are or pushed into it without a choice because there's nothing else that the government is willing or,
2: you know, your system is willing to support. That's right. We don't have a national home care program. We don't even have federal dollars earmarked specifically for home care. Um, And, you know, one of the problems that we have is we're supposed to have a public health care system in Canada, but we have Mm -hmm. public hospitals that contract out big contracts for staffing, for rehabilitation, for just about everything, to for-profit companies. So, on the surface, Mm. it looks like we have a public health care system, but in fact, we actually don't. Um, And the services and supports for elderly people and for people with disabilities to keep them at home so that they can age in place are extremely weak and grossly underfunded. And I'll give you one example. The government of Ontario, which probably has one of the highest rates of institutionalization in the world, is building 30,000 more long-term care beds and institutions, which old people don't want. They don't want to end up there. And few staff want to actually work there. So it raises the question, why are they doing something like that when there are so many alternatives that in many cases are less expensive, less restrictive, and certainly less dehumanizing, but they're not building those. You know they're not they're not funding those six point four billion plus new dollars for institutions only one billion for home care and that tells you why people are going into institutions.
1: So why are they doing that? Is it because it's more profitable?
2: Well, <laughs> it doesn't pass <laughs> the smell test from from our perspective. It seems to us that they have some friends in the corporate nursing home Mm. industry, um, and they're investing heavily there. There was a time, and I, I documented this in my thesis in 1996, where nursing home companies were making large donations to whatever the government in power was, large political donations, now companies aren't allowed to donate, but individuals still are, so there is nothing to stop mm-hmm. a company and its employees, for example, um, from making large donations. Or, you know, as one person told me when I interviewed them during, um, during my thesis, look, if we want to influence government policy, we'll just fly some senior people down to the Grand Cayman Islands. They actually said that. Wow. Yeah, bald phase, wow. no shame whatsoever. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, obviously government policy is being influenced because the institutional sector is getting six times as much funding as the home care sector is getting. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: as I said, it doesn't pass the smell test for us.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned some programs that are here in the United States that you don't have. Um, I think it would be good for people to understand what they are. Um, we've talked quite a bit here about the ombudsman program, which is really, really important. Um, from the outside, could you um, give your perspective about the, uh, the ombudsman program here that you would like to have there?
2: Well, it, it's looking to us like some of the ombudsman programs are part of the Money Follows the Person Um, initiative which we don't have. You see, we have lobbied for um, direct individualized funding. In other words, tying the money to the individual, not to the service provider, in this case a nursing home. So here in Ontario, that's $200 plus per person per day that could be tied to an individual to be able to organize the services and supports that they need themselves but instead it's going to the facility. So we love that the United States has a Money Follows the Prison program and that with that, things like state ombudsman programs are being being funded that actually look out for and are aligned with um, older people and vulnerable people. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is something we would love to have in Ontario and we don't have it. We do have a provincial ombudsman who kind of looks after everything but that office has not been particularly helpful to older people. Um, so having an ombudsman designated almost as an advocate for older people, that would be wonderful from our perspective. The same thing, you have PACE. You have Program of All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly. So those, program, those that kind of program basically builds services and supports into buildings where a large number of older people live. Um, we don't have that. We have all kinds of people living in seniors' buildings and in what we call community housing who desperately need support, but they can't get it. They have to navigate Mm -hmm. an inaccessible, confusing system and often don't get any of the care that they actually need anyway. And even if they manage to be found to require a certain amount of care a day, good luck with the personal support worker actually even showing up Things are very unreliable. And, you know, if you are somebody who's dependent on that, that's pretty scary when somebody doesn't show up. But that's Mm -hmm. what's happening here. That's what's happening here. And our concern is that we think that these companies may be billing the home care and community care support system and getting paid anyway. Like we don't even know what the Mm. system of accountability is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, wow. Yeah, and
1: those are really good programs that we have here, and I'm glad that you mentioned them, but a lot of people don't know about them, and they're not very
2: helpful if people don't access them. So, well, that's um, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so count your blessings that you have that, because we don't. <laughs> right. And we would, love, right. we would love to have that. We would love to have individualized direct funding. We would love to have Newfoundland and Labrador, bless them. Um, It's a very friendly, lovely province. Uh, They actually pay family caregivers. We don't have that in Ontario, which (laughs) is a much richer province, but we don't have it. And I think, you know, speaking of what you were saying earlier about ageism, that's really Mm -hmm. state-sponsored ageism that doesn't exist in Newfoundland and Labrador because they are prepared to pay for family caregivers so that older people can be looked after. In Ontario, they're not prepared to invest a dime in that. You know, the same thing with... We Mm -hmm. have a direct funding program. It's called the Family Managed Home Care Program. But it's not for old people. It's just for younger people. You know, Mm -hmm. and here in Ontario, we have closed institutions for every other disability group. You know, people with developmental disabilities, people with mental health challenges, and we were. Meanwhile, we were building institutions for old people. So, if you want to see what state-sponsored ageism looks like, you just have to look at these policies.
1: Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, I, I, I'm I'm really concerned about that. Um, that. Uh, medical Assistance and Dying program, um, because it sounds like what people are being told, and I feel like it's really very similar to what's happening in hospice here. I, I don't think that that we're so much better in that way. Um, Is that people are told well, Yes. Yeah. They're yes.
2: Paralyzed. Yes.
1: They are. Yes, very much so, and I think. People are being told, well, you know, what other choice do you have? We're not going right. to treat you. It's, it's too expensive. It's not worth it. <laughs> they don't use that's those, right. that language.
2: And it's terrible because that's the message to old people here as well. You're not worth it. You know, it's you You shouldn't be allowed to live out your natural life because we we think you're too expensive to take care of. And the impact of that on people's mental and physical health, it's inestimable. It really is. Mm -hmm. People are depressed. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of getting any older. Um, You know, and I mean, honestly, at its heart, I think ageism by younger people, especially those making these policies right now against older people, really is a state of denial, isn't it? Because it's a belief that they won't get old. And that the legacy they're creating won't affect them, except guess what? Those 30-year licenses that they're giving to warehouse old people now, for people who are 45 now, they're going to be 75 in 30 years, and guess who's going into Mm -hmm. those once they're dilapidated old facilities. They're building Mm -hmm. their own legacy by mistreating old people now. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think people think about that. I,
1: I don't think people think about that either, and I think that if they do, they think, well, I don't want to live to that age anyway.
2: Well, <laughs> um, but but when they get the there, <laughs> here's the problem. They're they're probably going to, and they may uh-huh. live longer than we're living now. I mean, that's the reality. And I mean, I know the boomer generation was very familiar with, I hope I die before I get old. But here we are, we're old. we're in our 70s and early 80s and you know I mean, time did not stop for us and so Mm -hmm. we can wish that and we can say well you know hopefully we won't be around to have to suffer these things but the reality is right now in Ontario tens of thousands of people are suffering those things who never thought they would end up in that situation so Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why we're advocating so hard for the alternatives but I can tell you the government here in Ontario and the Canadian government, neither are listening. Neither are listening. It's as if, it's as if they're hard of hearing. They are not I hearing think. old people who are saying, we want to age in place, we don't want to be uprooted and taken away from everything that's familiar at the most vulnerable time in our lives and have to go into an institution. I mean, anybody who's ever walked into an institution knows what they're like. You know, you don't, you don't get to eat when you want to. You don't get to eat what you want to. You don't get care a lot of times. You see the, the call bells ringing and ringing and ringing, people calling nurse, nurse, help, help. Nobody comes. You know, and it's humiliating. It's dehumanizing. You know, and people say, well, there are good homes. Well, you know what? I visited 200 nursing homes in Ontario in my career, and I never saw a good home. Mm -hmm. not one Mm -hmm. they're all like that you know
1: well people don't don't get to
2: decide anything that's the nature of an an institution
1: and i think there are times where people that they need they need that especially now because there isn't the option um for the type of care that people would get at home and there's more you know I'm thinking about my mom for example, she wouldn't have wanted to be home um without being able to see her friends. But the but right. then the question is how do we make the what for the institutions
2: better for the people who really need to be there. You know what? This is something that we have actually confronted for several years now. Um some of us um, deinstitutionalized the large facilities for people with developmental disabilities who had much more chronic and complex conditions than almost anyone you will see in a nursing home. They are living mm-hmm. successfully in the community in small community residences operated mm-hmm. by nonprofit organizations. Um, in Denmark, people with very complex needs are living in assisted living apartments. You know, much mm-hmm. like your Pace, where they have they have their own apartments, but they have care come to them. And well, that
3: would be so,
2: nice. Yeah, it would be nice. And this is what I mean. It's like people believe some people will need an institution. Well, no, they actually don't. What they need is they need residential care, which is not the same as an institution. You know, we right. don't have to warehouse people to provide care to them. They can still have their own space especially for women, it's so important that they have doors that lock rather than Mm -hmm. having people walk into their rooms at all hours of the day and night. It's terrifying for them. They shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to live like that. You know, they should have doors that lock, but only nursing staff or other staff have a key where they can come in and check after they've knocked if nobody answers. You know, in other words, people should be able to have some privacy and some security and still be able to receive care. And that's basically what we're saying. And that is much more available in small community residences, six people or less, where, you know, there's one staff person for every six people. You know, in nursing homes here in Ontario, it's one to 12 approximately, like double that. So Mm -hmm. God knows what happens when the PSW isn't around. And I think... That's what we have to deal with, is what quality of life do we all want? If we need care, what do we want to have happen? Do we want to end up in a 30-bed ward, locked in if we develop dementia? I mean, they spend most of their time trying to get out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. trying to escape. So we're asking for responsive behaviors, and, and we're creating distress for people by treating them that way. If they could be Mm -hmm. in a small home-like setting where they can smell food cooking, where they can have trauma-informed care brought in, you know, meditation classes, various types Mm -hmm. of things that are going to help them, um, that's so much better than being stuck in a locked ward. And we just shouldn't be doing things like that. This is the 21st century. You don't treat people that way. You know, it's what they used to do to people who they used to call mental patients. I mean, you know. We don't call people that anymore, and we don't treat people I, that way anymore, but we do old people.
1: And I'm picturing what that would be like, for example, for my mom. She was actually in an assisted living before she ended up needing to be in a nursing home because the assisted living said we can't handle her level of care anymore. And it's it's heartbreaking because she had made friends in right. the place where she lived. She had her own apartment. She loved the staff, um, but assisted See, living here. See, and that's the problem. Here.
2: That's that's mm-hmm. the problem, isn't it? Instead of staffing up and maintaining mm-hmm. somebody where they are, which the, you know that should be possible. Uh, you know, they can't do anything in a nursing home that they couldn't have done in assisted assisted living if they have staffed up. But they don't. Exactly. They don't. Exactly. And that's a big so, issue
1: here. I don't know if you're having that issue over there, the staffing shortages. Are you having
2: that yes there? Nobody wants to nobody wants to work in the institutions and people are now not wanting to work in the hospitals either. Because mm-hmm. bottom line, they're also institutions hospitals. You know, there are a lot of things that could be done for older people in community clinics. They wouldn't have to be done in the hospital but old people are being forced to go to the hospital for basic things that they shouldn't have to go for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole, what we're proposing is a whole shift in thinking. You know, can we get away from the institutional mindset of hospitalization or institutionalization, and can we get to starting to provide things in the community where people actually live? you know it's it seems ridiculous to me that at a time in people's lives where they're having a hard time you know getting places and you know mobility might be difficult or other things why is the onus on them to go to the services you know why do we not have <laughs> mobile services that can go to them you know i mean it just seems like every community could have that and yet that's not what government funds instead It's the cruelest option, you know, uproot them from everything they've ever known and just Mm -hmm. dump them into a big facility where they don't know anybody, where people are crying through the night, you know, where staff who they don't even know are providing the most personal care. I mean, I can't think of anything more awful than that. And yet that's what we do to old people, and we shouldn't. We
1: shouldn't. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I, I I was just thinking about how, you know, even if you, if somebody needs to go to physical rehab, let's say they yeah. had an event where they need, you know, extra therapy, um, mm-hmm. in order to get Medicare to pay for physical rehab here, to go into a place where you can stay for a week, acute rehab, where they, you know, work you out in a gym a couple of times a day, you actually have to be hospitalized overnight in order for Medicare imagine? to then pay. Yep.
2: That's just, that's it's ridiculous. Crazy. And, you know, that, that that actually reminds me of a story and, and something else that's far worse here than it was in the United States was we have a big corporation here called Extendicare, which you had also, um, that was operating in several yeah. states. And the Department of Justice went after them and nailed them for I don't know how many millions of dollars that they were supposed to repay because the services they were providing, rehab and nursing, were worse than useless. And so that's why the Department of Justice went after them. So from what we can gather, they, they you know, just left the U.S. and Guess where they're thriving? Here in Ontario. (laughs) They're thriving here. They're getting more beds. They're building more facilities. You know, the government's welcoming them with open arms. And we're saying, so the Department of Justice basically goes after them in the (laughs) United States, and they relocate here, and the government's here, welcome them? You know, the Saskatchewan Uh government did something different. The Saskatchewan government took over their facilities, and they are not operating there anymore. But in Ontario, they're welcomed with open arms, and the premier even said, "What a wonderful company they are." So there you go. That's what we're coping with here in Ontario right now. Wow. Yeah, I remember. I remember them. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're living. We're living that now. We're living that you know, now. Here, here in Ontario, we had 4,500 people die during COVID because of bad infection control. They had to send in the Canadian military to staff some of our for-profit facilities. Do you know that one of the facilities that they staffed just a few miles from where I live um, that was so bad that the medical officer of health called in the hospital first to try to save lives and then the military came in to try to save lives and they documented conditions that were absolutely horrific. The government of Ontario just gave them a 30-year license and bed expansions.
1: Wow. So this now is what I, I mean. I saw that you wrote a book. Is that the book, The Story of Orchid Villa?
2: The Story of Orchard Villa.
1: Villa.
2: Yeah, The Story yeah. of Orchard Villa. At the time it was going on and people were dying, um, 78 people ended up dying in that facility in the first wave of COVID. The, the relatives were absolutely distraught, and I sat down and talked with them, and I said, you know, I'm going to document your experiences so that nobody ever forgets this. And I did. I wrote a book, I wrote a a small book called A Perfect Storm, The the Tragic Story of Orchard Villa. And it's in the Mm -hmm. libraries all around here now because people shouldn't forget what happened to those people. And they were real people, like they were people like you and I. They had lives, they were treated abominably, and they died alone and afraid because their Mm. relatives, they wouldn't let them go into the facilities. Which well, is another uh, problem uh, with
1: institutions. They kept them out. Yeah. So I have two things to say about that. One, what is brief. One last week I had a guest on Rosie Davis, who founded a worldwide group called the Yellow Heart um, Yellow Heart Memorial, which mm-hmm. is to remember the people lost during COVID. It's actually a, right. a traveling memorial um, because. Her own mom died in a nursing home that way, the way that you're describing it yeah. here in Texas. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing is that there's an initiative, and, and it's it, it unbelievably here. It's legal. It was made into a law here in Texas and in Connecticut. Two opposite ends of the political spectrum both agreed on this law. And now the people in Connecticut, the ombudsman, um, Program and people in the um, statewide family council are trying to make it national, and that is a law called the Essential Persons Act, which, right. is, which means that people cannot be. If the, every resident of the nursing home has the right to choose two, up to two people who cannot be locked out. If there's another um, health emergency or any kind of national emergency, they can't be locked out as long as they're following the same guidelines of the
2: staff. That's great. That's great. Because what you're
1: talking about is so horrific. Um,
3: yeah,
2: it is. So they, many they've people tried to, died. They tried to get something similar. Vula's law, they tried to get passed here in Ontario as well. You know, and it's just, it is, it's absolutely horrific, and it's inhuman to deny families access to each other during an emergency like that and to Mm. have to watch their loved ones die through windows, because that's what happened Mm -hmm. here. People would stand at windows trying to see their loved ones, and they could see that they weren't being given anything to drink. They could see that they were starving to death, and they couldn't get Mm. into the facilities. Like, you know, there was security to keep them out. Right. It was just horrific, absolutely horrific
1: a lot of facilities here um, used it as an excuse and they kept the lockdown going way after the state health department yep. opened things right. up.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Um, because they don't they don't like families having their eyes on what's going on. I mean, when you don't have your eyes there, so much neglect, like you just said, can occur. And exactly. a lot of the facilities you can't even look through the window because they're multi-story
2: facilities. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. And now they're building those here as well. They used to be just one floor, not anymore. They're going up to 15 floors now. You would never be able to get in. And, you know, Mm -hmm. why you would build a 15-story facility for people who literally can't get out if there was a fire or another emergency, that's just... That in itself is just appalling. That should never happen. You know, not only should we not have institutions, but institutions that big that are 15 stories high, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just dreadful. Shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I've yeah. actually worked in some like that in New York. In Manhattan, yeah.
2: they, they they don't have much uh, land, so they go up. That's right. <laughs> that's right. No, mm-hmm. that's right. And you know what? Your mom deserved better. Thousands of other people deserve better. You know, they work hard all of their lives. They pay their taxes. They're law-abiding citizens. And then in their old age, they get thrown on the scrap heap like that. You know, mm-hmm. what kind of a society are we, really? You know, I mean, I I literally said to some of my friends that this is the first time. I'm 75 now, and it's the first time in my life that I have been ashamed of our governments. You know, our governments never used to be like this, but they are now. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's cruel and it's callous, and it's just, what's the cheapest option? What can we do? How can we best pay off our friends in the industry? And, you know, who cares what happens to the poor old people? You know, we have real estate investment trusts running care facilities. They don't know the first thing about running a care facility, they're real estate investment trusts. You know, mm-hmm. they're, holding, mm-hmm. they're holding buildings on valuable land. I mean, that's basically it. And now we've got financialized companies, asset management companies, who are the parent companies of these things. And, like, you've got two or three different corporations taking profits out of these facilities. So this is all public money, and it's going straight into the pockets of these big corporations. It's um, just you know, you know I, to I, me uh, that to me that's what corruption looks like. Yes, and and you know
1: I talked to somebody who was saying that um, I think she's, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was state legislature um, in Connecticut, and what she was saying was that um, if a nursing home is making a profit, then that means they're not giving care to the residents because right it's so expensive to give quality care to residents that it's, it's not possible to make a profit unless you're keeping money from the care.
2: That's right. And they make most of their money on staffing shortages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. the excuse is, well, you know, we can't get enough staff. So a big corporation can't acquire enough staff a big corporation can't run its own infection control training for staff. You know, I mean, during the pandemic, all of this was going on, and I thought these big corporations can't bring in SWAT teams to clean up these facilities where people are dying. I mean, there's something wrong. We have, we have a ton of class action lawsuits against these big corporations here in Ontario right now because they're basically saying they were completely neglectful. You know, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. these people mm-hmm. who died in their care died needlessly. So, you know, this is what's going on, but this is after the fact. The suffering has happened. You know, and good luck, because they're going to put up very, very, very good lawyers against the lawyers who are bringing the class action lawsuits. So who well, knows you, what's going on? You know,
1: you know there are big lawsuits in New York City or <laughs> New York yeah. State. Yeah, um, yes. I, I mean, I what was going on there was just unbelievable. Yeah. But what we out have, have to movie do, movie.
2: and you know what? We're a big generation. You know, what we have to do is we have to let our legislators know we we can still vote. And we want to know what are they going to do? What are they going to do? to ensure that people can age more comfortably in their own homes and communities. Like, I want to hear from them. What specifically, if they were elected, are they going to do about this? And Mm -hmm. are they going to get bought off by the nursing home industry the same as their predecessors? That's what I want to know. Those are the questions I will be asking them when they come to my door. And I Mm -hmm. hope thousands of older people ask the same questions. You know, and just say, enough. We're not going to give you, you you don't automatically get our vote. You have to earn it. And that means that you have to be advocating much more humane alternatives for us. Because we are, we're still a big generation. And, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. our society is aging. And we should have a lot more clout than we have. And it's because we're not using it. We need to let our legislators know
1: i think you I think you made a really big a really good point um you know I've been talking about how do we start a movement to stop ageism, and I think that it really has to start with the politicians and letting them know that they need to pay attention to the issues that affect the older adults, whether it's you know nursing home versus you know home care, what you were talking about. Um, better health care for elderly people. Um, there are so many issues that are affected by ageism because, you know, that is, it's so bred into us. We just, you know, have been throwing old people away. I started working in nursing homes when I got out of graduate school. Um, and when I Was in graduate school, saying I wanted a special. I wanted to do a specialty in geriatrics, so that I knew what I was doing. Um, I was questioned by supervisors. Like, why would you do that?
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) Who wants to work with old people, right? Right. And when I was crazy friends. Yeah. Because it's incredibly rewarding work. You know, really working is. with working with older adults is there's a richness to it because of their lived experiences. And, you know, it's a generation that still still knows how to feel grateful when people are kind or when people go out of their way. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like that has that kind of decency and that kind of civility has been lost in our society, but many old people still have it. <laughs> That's, you know, sure. and it would be it would be good for younger people to experience that. Somebody who says thank you. You know, mm-hmm. because they know that somebody went above the call of duty. I mean, some of those things that's that's what makes a job worthwhile. Is when people feel like they're making a difference and that they've changed somebody's life for the better. And older people will let younger people know that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's it's a very valuable career. And I used to say that to students when I was the Associate Dean of Health Sciences at Humber. I said, you know, you've chosen a career that is so valuable and where you will be valued by the people that you provide care to. And I still hear from students telling me that that was exactly right, that they're so mm-hmm. glad that they chose that career. You know, mm-hmm. but you're right. I mean, a lot of people discourage people from that. And it's such a shame because both younger people and older people benefit, you know, by coming together like that. So, you know, I don't know why. I don't know why that happens in post-secondary education, but it really shouldn't because it is a valuable mm-hmm. career. It is a valuable career. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, wish more I best people would do that.
1: I was told that I was wasting my abilities, <laughs> um, oh my goodness and um and when and when I went into the nursing home, I found that the doctors there um, wouldn't refer to a psychologist um you know we had oh. because we were paid by medicare, um we had to have a referral from the from the attending doctor in the facility. And many of them would say, well, you're just going to go and hold their hand. We don't, we're don't. we not going to have Medicare pay you for that. You're not doing Can you anything imagine? for them. Can you <laughs> imagine? Uh,
2: uh, yeah. Well, this is, but there's the example of what I was talking about. There's an example of a younger person not understanding what it's like to be old, and thinking they're never going to get old. And, you know, mm-hmm. that, this is the interesting thing, is older people know what it's like to be young, but younger people don't know what it's like to be older. Okay. Right. Um, and, you know, so that's why ageism is a thing, is they don't know how it feels, and so they don't know how to behave. And, you know, a doctor who would do that thinks they're never going to get old. What, they're never going to need mm-hmm. somebody even if all they do do is hold their hand, which isn't what psychologists do, but even if that was all that they did, then aren't they entitled to that? Aren't they entitled to a bit of kindness in their old age, especially if they're feeling depressed and who can blame them if they're living in a facility? Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, they've had no other choice and their families had no other choice and that's what they're stuck with. I mean, who wouldn't be depressed in a situation like that? Mm -hmm. Mm So it's absolutely understandable And, you know, but there you have it Where you have a younger person Who just doesn't understand That people need that at all ages They need somebody to be kind They need somebody to listen They need somebody to try and help
1: Well, I think you gave the formula, though For how do we change this And that is by, you know, demanding from our politicians, that they pay attention to our, the issues of older adults or we're not going to vote for them. I yeah. think that's like that's. we, really drew them, we, we have them. We drew leverage. them a
2: blueprint. We drew them a blueprint. We don't think politicians are very bright. I can almost hear your listeners laughing because they're really not. <laughs> so we drew them a mm-hmm. blueprint of the least restrictive to the most restrictive alternative and what that aging continuum would look like. And we've told them this is where the money should go. This is where the emphasis should go. And the institution should be the absolute last resort, not the first resort. So it's literally a diagram that they can look at. It's very simple. (laughs) But it tells them Uh this is the least restrictive alternative that you should be funding. Here's the medium, medium, Alt, uh, restrictive alternative and this is the least restrictive the money should go in the first two and not the third instead in Ontario it's reversed mm-hmm mm-hmm so yeah
1: so so I, I saw that you have um, a company Spindell and Associates what yes what do you do
2: oh this was um, after I left uh, teaching post-secondary education, a lot of um, non-profit organizations asked if I would train their staff. (laughs) And so I said, sure. And it was my husband who said, you know, if you're going to do that, you probably should start a company because, you know, I mean, if you just are paid directly, then it's going to really kick you into a different income bracket, and that's not very smart. Uh So... So that's what we did. I mean, we were literally forced to start a company because I was getting so many requests from people to come and train their staff. And these were a broad range of human service organizations. You know, um, like you know, community-based agencies for people with mental health issues, people with developmental disabilities, people who are older, people who are homeless. You know, just a whole range um, because we had all met each other previously because I would go out and check out agencies before we would place our students in them. You know, Mm -hmm. I was one of the very few actually who actually did that, who went out to look at the agencies and see what kind of a learning experience our students would have in these agencies. So I met a lot of these people. I met a lot of the directors and the supervisors. And so that's why when I left, they they wanted me to come back and, and teach their staff. So that's, that's basically what I did for a number okay. of years. <laughs> yeah. And you've written a few books as I've well. written several books. Yeah, I've written three books for Canadian Scholars Press on working with families, another one on community development, and on one on um, empowerment-oriented case management. It's called Case Management from an Empowerment Perspective. It oh. basically lays out how we should be treating people instead of how we are treating people. right (laughs) wow
1: so do you you pass them out to people and say please read this (laughs) well Canadian
2: Scholars Press doesn't pass them out to people but (laughs) 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 people have to so what happens is that um, colleges and universities and in the United States as well interestingly enough um, have ordered them for their students Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you know I mean it I obviously come from a positive psychology and and strengths perspective, and so basically the book talks about how you operationalize that when you're working with people. You know, how does it look? Um, And these are the ways you can do it. And so it's practical, um, and it's to the point, and that's why um, a number of colleges and universities have ordered it, because it's very practical um, for students. Too many books are written in a very theoretical way, as you will know well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, um, And very few are written, you know, giving really practical examples of how you actually put those theories into practice. And so I saw a need for books like that. My students also told me that I should be writing some of these things because they're saying, you know, things that I was teaching them. They said, you know, you should write this down. And
3: that uh-huh. got me
2: thinking that got me thinking that maybe i should I should put a few books together, so mm-hmm. so it was it was a good experience to do it, and I still hear from my students who tell me that they have the books <laughs> that's great former students yeah mhm mhm yeah so,
1: so so if listeners so, if listeners would want to learn more about you know the things that you're doing with um seniors for social action um, in your company to find out about your books or even download. I saw that that perfect storm about um, Orchard Villa is free. It's a free download. Yes, it is um, free. How can they do all of that? How can they get all of that information and kind of get people going to start start this movement?
2: <laughs> exactly. Well. Um, we do have a Seniors for Social Action Ontario website, and we have tabs that say editorial and research and policy papers. So people can just go there and they can read all of that for free if they want to. And I'm, Americans are welcome to join us. We we love Americans, <laughs> so we, okay. we would love to have people join us. Um, basically, if they go to the website, there they can join an email list. So they can find out everything we're doing you know we send out information on a regular basis and so they can find out everything we're doing and you know when we have um, different advocacy initiatives we will send out action alerts that kind of thing so all of that can translate also to what they can say to their legislators about what they would like to see in place I mean we have some wonderful research there on what they're doing in Denmark, you know, what people in Australia are doing, you know, mm-hmm. different countries in the world that have done things differently than us. And so all of the research and all of that stuff is actually there. So people can just go and look at that for free. And as you pointed and out that, on the, spin, the Spindel & Associates, on. If, they, if they just, just Google that, that. There is the free download of the book on Orchard Villa, is there as well. Um, And Canadian Scholars Press has my book, so all they have to do is just type my name in the bar and all the books that I've written will come up.
1: Okay. So that, just so, because I'm going to put this on my website post later tonight. So the website for Seniors for Social Action, do you is that just Seniors for or should they just Ontario? no, it's
2: seniorsforsocialactionontario.com, for Social I think it is. But Ontario. but if they if they just Google Seniors for Social Action Ontario, um, the website should come up. So okay, just, just,
1: yeah. Okay. So. And then
2: your website um, is yeah, Bindell and
1: Associates.
2: Yes, it's seniors for so, uh, seniorsactionOntario dot com is what comes up. seniorsactionontario.com. dot com. Okay, great.
1: And your personal website with your books and the
2: free download is Bindell and Associates. .com. Yep, they, I think they just have to Google Spindell and Associates. Let me just see. I'll just make sure of that. I'm just doing it right now. Um, it's spindelconsulting.net.
1: Okay. All right.
2: And I'll, I'll be posting that on
1: my website post about the show later tonight. So if people didn't have their pen and paper ready... They can just go to the website, and everything will be there along with the podcast, so they they want to re-listen to this.
2: Um, That's great. Well, it's wonderful talking to you, Mara, and I'm sorry that all of that happened to your mother, because that's a terrible thing to have to live through, and I guess what we're both trying to do is we're trying to prevent other people from having to live through that.
1: Yes. Well, you know, the good thing is that she got through it, and... uh, um, like you said, that people know that they're being thrown away. It affects their their uh, mood. Um, yes. The benefit of the fact that the doctor never spoke to my mom was that she never knew what was happening. Thank I, goodness. I dealt with it. I, I protected her from that and I never told her. So well,
2: I, this I, is one of those you know, things where it's good that she had you and it's good that you had her. <laughs>
1: Yes, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so much for um for being on the program. This was really really informative
2: and um and
1: let's stay in touch. I would love to
2: have you come oh, back. Oh, absolutely.
1: And, absolutely, yeah. we will.
2: And and thanks so much to your listeners for tuning in. That's very kind of them to give give up their time and to have a listen.
1: Yes. All right. And you have a good evening. Enjoy the the warm weather in
2: Canada. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We will. We'll be out wearing our shorts. (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.
1: All right. We've come to the end of another program, and before we um, go off the air, let me fill you in on a couple of things. As I mentioned last Wednesday, I was a guest, on another blog talk radio program you can listen to that podcast on my website on my radio show page uh, we, it is taped and I was interviewed by Marsha Joyner uh, for her blog talk radio show betrayed by hospice and next Sunday March the 10th Marsha Joyner will be my guest and aside from hosting that show She's the board member of the Hospice Patients Alliance, and Marsha will be here to discuss how hospice went from being a way for people who were actively dying to die with minimum pain and with dignity to a profit-making business, causing people who are not necessarily in that category um, to be convinced to enter into their care. Uh, where the patients are often given one-size-fits-all drugs, so we're going to talk about that and how to how to be able to vet hospices, so you know if it's a good one and if it's the right thing for your loved one or for yourself. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this, um, read the information the the websites that we talked about on this show, listen to previous programs. Go to my website, it's all there, it's later tonight, drmaricarpel.com, and you can also listen to this program in five minutes by going to blogtalkradio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com, slash, your golden years. and if you go to Apple Podcasts, this program will also be there in five minutes from now, and be sure to follow me on Facebook, Dr. Maricarpel, Your Golden Years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Patricia Spindell. Thank you to Art, and thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth have no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe.
3: Comes a time when you're all alone comes a time gotta write that song may not make any sense at all but it's up to you keep a smile on your face now I've been young mostly every day just like you don't you ever change cause this world's getting pretty old and it's up to you keep a smile on your face butterflies down butterflies down butterflies down now don't forget who wrote you this song
0: any guidance offered by dr. Carpel is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist Neither Dr. Karpel, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program.